Today, I want to help us to be a community of prayer. And I want to help you to be a person of prayer, to be thoughtful about what it means to pray, and to maybe give you a head start, a handhold, if you're having a hard time praying. So let us pray. Shatter the silence, mighty God, with your glad and glorious greetings. Banish all our fears and give us faith in Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. If there is anything said from this pulpit that is against your will, let it come to naught and do no harm. But if there is anything said from this pulpit that is according to your will, let it be heard as if sung by the voice of angels, that hearing we might believe, and believing obey. Amen. We can see an outline of a person walking toward us in the twilight. We can't see the outline's face, but we know who it is. We know it is a woman in her 40s. We can tell that she has her hands in the pocket of her hooded sweatshirt. Her head is down and her shoulders are slumped. She is coming from the trailer next door. The trailer sits down in a hollow, and so she's walking up a grassy lawn. It is November, right before Thanksgiving, and so the ground is hard. It's kind of surprising that we don't have any snow yet. It crunches, though. The ground does. As she walks in the near dark. Her weariness is so powerful. We can see it from where we are, even in the twilight. We can more than see it even. Her weariness infects us from where we stand on the front deck. She is the kind of person that Jesus is speaking to with his words this morning. Not directly, of course. Jesus is speaking directly to his friends and followers in the first century, all people who associate with the Hebrew temple. They've carried the yoke of the law for centuries. The law, which was given to Moses on Sinai, was meant to be an instrument that brought the people together, that shaped them as a community and connected them to God as they left Egypt and made their way to the promised land. That was the intent of the law when it was given to Moses. But now the law serves as a millstone around the neck of the people, placed there, tied there by the Pharisees. Their yoke had little to do with relationship to God and everything to do with the obedience to the system of their creation. It is a yoke and it is a heavy one. 
It is a religious yoke, but it's not the only thing that brings weariness to the people. See, the Roman Empire has a tremendous appetite for control and allegiance. That empire, by the way, was birthed only a few decades officially before the birth of Jesus. And so that regime flexes in its adolescence. It desired to consume their entire way of life. Under the imperial way, the elite grow fat at the expense of the ordinary, and any way of thinking that threatens what it means to be a quote-unquote real Roman is violently squashed. The legions take what they want and they apply rules at their whim. It has been only a century since Julius Caesar's triumvirate mate, Marcus Crassus, lined the road to Rome with crucifixions of slaves after the slave revolt initiated by Spartacus. But they have not grown out of their thirst for oppressive torture. And Jesus, a new kind of Spartacus in some ways, will learn that firsthand. These are the entities, these are the yokes that crushed the first followers of Jesus into weariness. Religious yokes, imperial yokes. What crushes today's followers of Jesus into weariness? Today I am weary. I am weary for the acts of terrorism that took the lives of innocent men and women not only in El Paso but also in Dayton. I am weary. And I am weary that we don't have a better way of talking about this, a way of talking about this together as a community, as a country a way that might make things better. You don't want to hear my opinions from the pulpit unless they are the same as yours. And if I'm honest, I feel the same way about your opinions. At the back door or in the anonymous letter. And that makes me weary. Because I believe that if we could be human and recognize the yoke and the heaviness of it together, we could be better. But we won't, and so let us be weary. We are all walking in twilight today. The human soul is under siege. The human soul is in desperate need of a church, in need of the church, a church, any church that's less concerned about its internal preferences and obsessed with the idea of the love of God being revealed in each and every corner of despair. There is an infectious weariness afoot and we walk in twilight and it's something in fact that we hold in common with so many of the forebearers in our long line of faith think about the weariness that adam and eve must have had 
when they broke something and couldn't fix it. Think about the weariness that Abraham had when he was always getting it wrong with his family. Maybe some of you share in that weariness. With Aaron, who was always overlooked for his brother Moses. With David, who carried so much shame. Weariness. And there's some relief in knowing that we share this in common with them because first we know that walking in the twilight, in the weariness, whatever our weariness is, well, it's part of being human. But also because just as they were not forgotten, neither will we, the same power that offered them freedom has broken our burdensome yoke and offered up a new one. We cling to them because they were not forgotten, neither are we. So come unto me, Jesus says, all who are weary and heavy laden, every person walking in the twilight, whatever your twilight is, come unto him whenever you have twilight. His yoke is easy and his burden is light, but this, I think, is an additional reason to be weary. Because as much as Jesus has the power to break the yoke and offer one that is easy, I have to wonder if we live in a world that has forgotten or maybe never knew how to come to him and receive what is being offered. If we have forgotten how to pray, if we live in a world that has abandoned this call to prayer, we have reason to be weary. And if we live in a world that has abandoned a call to prayer, then perhaps we should be asking why. And if we ask why aren't they coming to prayer and we're honest about the answer, we, the church, might find ourselves looking in the mirror. Because prayer is one of the most manipulated practices in all of our tradition. We ask people to pray for things, pray for good weather, pray for money. We lay religious guilt on those that do not have their prayers for wealth or health answered as if their prayers weren't good enough. We give power to those that call on God and seem to get a direct response. You have no idea how many times I am congratulated when it's sunny out for the garden service. Not only that, we use prayer, we manipulate it, to avoid direct participation in easing a problem. I had a neighbor once, he lived in the trailer next door. He liked to have prayer meetings at his house. They sang, they read scripture, they prayed. They prayed for things that they should have been praying for, illness, addiction, and the like. And one day when I was 18 or 19 years old, I backed my car into a ditch. Shocking, I know. It was a really steep ditch, and I had no chance of driving out of it. AMC Eagles weren't made for off-roading. <laughs> I exited my car. I looked at my dilemma. I was stuck. I would need help. But if I could get a few people to push, I would be just fine. And wouldn't you know it, the neighbor from next door pulled up alongside of me, and he had a few of his prayers with him. I see you're in a ditch, he said. Not my best moment, I told him. He paused and looked it over one more time. Well, I'll be praying for you, he laughed. 
and he drove away. <laughs> he did. He drove away. Listen, if we attend to the world and its troubles and its weariness by simply saying, I'll pray for you or you have my thoughts and prayers and then driving away, we give people a reason to laugh. We can do it if we want. We can. We will just then have to understand why the ones that are troubled, the ones that are weary, are distancing themselves from prayer. We have to care about the reputation that we give to the practice of prayer. My sense is, is that if we want to reclaim prayer as central to who we are, if we want to speak into the lives of the weary, just as Jesus hoped he was doing, then we need to look carefully at texts like today's and shift what we're expecting from our prayer life. See it? We don't use prayer to acquire things. We don't use prayer to avoid helping. God uses prayer to give us rest. Come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laid, in the text says. And then he doesn't say, and by the way, now I'll make it all better. He doesn't say, and then I will remove all responsibility from you. Jesus says, and I will give you rest. Throughout scripture, this word that Jesus uses for rest represents more than just sleep but an intimacy with God that relieves the pressure of knowing that all of life depends on you. I want to encourage you to be a community of prayer, to be individuals who pray. And I want you to pray for whatever is on your heart, whatever it is that you need, pray it. But I also want to challenge you to make your first and best prayer for the very thing that Jesus says he wants to give you. Because what Jesus wants to give you is the best thing for you to have. And do you know what that is? Rest. The intimacy with God. Because if you rest, if you rest in God, you might listen. And if you listen, you might love. And if you love, then we might love. And if we love, the world might heal. even in the twilight. Let me close up. I can remember where I was standing when I found out that my grandfather had suffered a brain aneurysm and was in the hospital. All I knew about an aneurysm was that it was serious and they let me go in and see him in the bed with all the machines in his private room kind of room for those that need the privacy of saying goodbye. You know the kind of room. This was the first time I had ever been in a room like this and why this is a story that shaped me. There's not much that can be done for a person with a brain aneurysm. Not much except pray. And so we did. And that's what they were doing down there at that trailer they were praying 
They were praying at my neighbor's house, the neighbor who was so fond of praying that he left me in the ditch. Forgive me if I mistrust his way of praying. These days, it matters to me what we are praying for. It matters to me what they were praying for. Were they praying for a miracle? We're called to pray for miracles. Pray them out loud. Pray them all day long and all night too. But if a miracle, a miracle of health is all that they were praying for, they were not praying for enough. If a miracle of blood and bone, cash and coin, status and security is all that we pray for, then we're not praying for enough. We're not praying for what Jesus wanted them to have and wants each one of us to have. He wants to give us rest. Were they praying for that down at the trailer in the hollow, for that burdenlessness? Because now she's walking back toward us. Hands in her sweatshirt. And she is weary. She is weary in a way that crushes the human heart. She is weary and she is my mother. And more than anything, I want her and the father she was praying for to be mercifully joined to the father she was praying to and find rest in that. And I want the same for you. Amen.